Chapter 7, Part 1 of The Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 2, by William Blackstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roy Haynes Of Freehold Estates of Inheritance, Part 1 the next objects of our disquisitions are the nature and properties of estates. An estate in lands, tenements, and hereditaments signifies such interest as the tenant hath therein, so that if a man grants all his estate in Dale to A and his heirs, everything that he can possibly grant shall pass thereby. It is called in Latin flatus, it signifying the condition or circumstance in which the owner stands with regard to his property. And, to ascertain this with proper precision and accuracy, estates may be considered in a threefold view. First, with regard to the quantity of the interest which the tenant has in the tenement. Secondly, with regard to the time at which the quantity of interest is to be enjoyed. And, thirdly, with regard to the number and connections of the tenants. First, with regard to the quantity of interest which the tenant has in the tenement, this is measured by its duration and extent. Thus, either his right of possession is to subsist for an uncertain period during his own life or the life of another man, to determine at his own decease or to remain to his descendants after him, or it is circumscribed within a certain number of years, months, or days, or Lastly, it is infinite and unlimited, being vested in him and his representatives forever. And this occasions the primary division of estates into such as are freehold and such as are less than freehold. An estate of freehold, liberum tenementum, or frankentenement, is defined by Britain to be the possession of the soil by a free man. And St. German tells us that the possession of the land is called in the law of England the frankentenement or freehold. Such a state, therefore, and no other, as requires actual possession of the land, is legally speaking freehold, which actual possession can, by the course of the common law, be only given by the ceremony called livery of fifen, which is the same as the feudal investiture. And from these principles we may extract this description of a freehold, that it is such an estate in lands as is conveyed by libri of fifen, or in tenements of an incorporeal nature by what is equivalent thereto. And accordingly, it is laid down by Littleton that where a freehold shall pass, it behoveth to have livery of fifen. As, therefore, estates of inheritance and estates for life could not by common law be conveyed without livery of fifen, these are properly estates of freehold. And as no other estates were conveyed with the same solemnity, therefore no others are properly freehold estates. Estates of freehold, then, are divisible into estates of inheritance and estates not of inheritance. The former are again divided into inheritances absolute or fee simple, and inheritances limited, one species of which we usually call freetail.
1. Tenant in fee simple, or as he is frequently styled, tenant in fee, is he that hath lands, tenements, or hereditaments to hold to him and his heirs forever, generally, absolutely, and simply, without mentioning what heirs, but referring that to his own pleasure or to the disposition of the law. The true meaning of the word fee, theodem, is the same with that of feud or fife, and in its original sense, it is taken in contradistinction to elodium, which latter the writers on this subject define to be every man's own land which he possesseth merely in his own right, without owing any rent or service to any superior. This is property in its highest degree, and the owner thereof hath absolutum et directum dominium, and therefore is said to be fife thereof absolutely in dominica sua, in his own domain. But fiordum, or fee, is that which is held of some superior on condition of rendering him service, in which the superior, the ultimate property of the land, resides. And therefore, Sir Henry Spellman defines a feud or fee to be the right which the vassal or tenant hath in lands to use the same and take the profits thereof to him and his heirs, rendering to the Lord his due services, the mere allodial property of the soil always remaining in the Lord. This allodial property no subject in England has, it being a received and now undeniable principle in the law that all the lands in England are holden immediately or immediately of the king. The king, therefore, only hath absolutum et directum dominium, but all subjects' lands are in the nature of feodum, or fee, whether derived to them by descent from their ancestors, or purchased for a valuable consideration, for they cannot come to any man by either of those ways, unless accompanied with those feudal clogs which were laid upon the first feudatory when it was originally granted. A subject, therefore, hath only the usufruct, and not the absolute property of the soil, or, as Sir Edward Coke expresses it, he hath dominium utili, but not dominium directum. And hence it is that in the most solemn acts of law we express the strongest and highest estate that any subject can have by these words. He is fife thereof in his demean, as of fee. It is a man's demean, dominicum, or property, since it belongs to him and his heirs forever. Yet this dominicum, property, or demean, is strictly not absolute or elodial, but qualified or feudal. It is his demean as of fee, that is, it is not purely and simply his own, since it is held of a superior lord in whom the ultimate property resides. This is the primary sense and acceptation of the word fee. But, as Sir Martin Wright very justly observes, the doctrine that all lands are holden, having been for so many ages a fixed and undeniable axiom, our English lawyers do very rarely, of late years especially, use the word fee in this its primary original sense, in contradistinction to a lodium or absolute property, with which they have no concerns, but generally use it to express the continuance or quantity of a state.
A fee, therefore, in general, signifies an estate of inheritance, being the highest and most extensive interest that a man can have in a feud, and, when the term is used simply, without any other adjunct, or has the adjunct of simple annexed to it, as a fee or fee simple, it is used in contradistinction to a fee conditional at the common law, or a fee tail by the statute, importing an absolute inheritance clear of any condition, limitation, or restrictions to particular heirs, but descendable to the heirs general, whether male or female, lineal or collateral. And in no other sense than this is the king said to be fiefed in fee, he being the feudatory of no man. Taking, therefore, fee for the future, unless we're otherwise explained, in this its secondary sense, as a state of inheritance, it is applicable to, and may be had in, any kind of hereditaments, either corporeal or incorporeal. But there is this distinction between the two species of hereditaments. That of a corporeal inheritance, a man shall be said to be fiefed in his demesne as of fee. Of an incorporeal one, he shall only be said to be fiefed as of fee, and not in his demesne. For, as incorporeal hereditaments are in their nature collateral to, and issue out of, lands and houses, their owner hath no property, dominicum, or demesne, in the thing itself, but hath only something derived out of it resembling the servitudes, or services, of the civil law. The dominicum, or property, is frequently in one man, while the appendage, or service, in another. Thus Gaius may be fiefed as a fee of a way going over the land, of which Titius is fiefed in his demesne as of fee. The fee simple, or inheritance of lands and tenements, is generally vested and resides in some person or other, though diverse inferior estates may be carved out of it. As if one grants a lease for twenty-one years, or for one or two lives, the fee simple remains vested in him and his heirs, and after the determination of those years or lives, the land reverts to the grantor or his heirs, who shall hold it again in fee simple. Yet sometimes the fee may be in abeyance, that is, as the word signifies, in expectation, remembrance, and contemplation in law, there being no person in esse in whom it can vest and abide, though the law considers it as always potentially existing and ready to vest whenever a proper owner appears. Thus, in a grant to John for life, and afterwards to the heirs of Richard, the inheritance is plainly neither granted to John nor Richard, nor can it vest in the heirs of Richard till his death, nam ne no este aeres viventi. It remains, therefore, in waiting or abeyance during the life of Richard. This is likewise always the case of a parson of a church who hath only an estate therein for the term of his life and the inheritance remains in abeyance. And not only the fee, but the freehold also may be in abeyance, as when a parson dies, the freehold of his glebe is in abeyance until a successor be named, and then it vests in the successor. The word heirs is necessary in the grant or donation in order to make a fee or inheritance. 
Or if land be given to a man for ever, or to him and his assigns for ever, this vests in him but an estate for life. This very great nicety about the insertion of the word heirs in all fiefments and grants in order to vest the fee is plainly a relic of the feudal strictness by which we may remember it was required that the form of the donation should be punctually purified, or that, as Craig expresses it, in the words of Baldus, Donations sint stricti juris, nequis plusse donasse presumator, quam in donatione expresserit. And therefore, as the personal abilities of the donee were originally supposed to be the only inducements to the gift, the donee's estate in the lands extended only to his own person and subsisted no longer than his life. Unless the donor, by express provision in the grant, gave it a longer continuance, and extended it also to his heirs. But this rule is now softened by many exceptions. 4. 1. It does not extend to the devisee by will, in which, as they were introduced at the time of the feudal Grigor was a pace wearing out, a more liberal construction is allowed, and therefore by a devisee to a man forever, or to one and his assigns forever or to one in fee simple, the devisee hath an estate of inheritance. For the intention of the devisor is sufficiently plain from the words of perpetuity annexed, though he hath omitted the legal words of inheritance. But if the devisee be to a man and his assigns, without annexing the words of perpetuity, there the devisee shall take only an estate for life, for it does not appear that the devisor intended any more. 2. Neither does this rule extend to fines or recoveries considered as a species of conveyance, for thereby an estate in fee passes by act and operation of law without the word heirs, as it does also, for particular reasons, by certain other methods of conveyance, which have relation to a former grant or estate wherein the word heirs was expressed. 3. In creations of nobility by writ, the peer so created hath an inheritance in his title without expressing the word heirs, for they are implied in the creation unless it be otherwise specifically provided. But in creations by patent, which are stricti juris, the word heirs must be inserted, otherwise there is no inheritance. 4. In grants of lands to sole corporations and their successors, the word successors supplies the place of heirs. For as heirs take from the ancestor, so doth the successor from the predecessor. Nay, in a grant to a bishop or other sole spiritual corporation in Frankelmoyne, the word Frankelmoyne supplies the place of both heirs and successors ex termini, and in all these cases, a fee simple vests in such sole corporation. But, in a grant of lands to a corporation aggregate, the word successors is not necessary, though usually inserted. For, albeit such simple grant be strictly only an estate for life, yet, as that corporation never dies, such estate for life is perpetual, or equivalent to a fee simple, and therefore, the law allows it to be one. Lastly, in the case of the king, a fee simple will vest in him without the words heirs or successors in the grant, partly from the prerogative royal, 
and partly from a reason similar to the last, because the king, in judgment of law, never dies. But the general rule is that the word heirs is necessary to create an estate of inheritance. 2. We are next to consider limited fees, or such estates of inheritance, as are clogged and confined with conditions or qualifications of any sort. And these we may divide into two sorts, one, qualified or base fees, and two, fees conditional, so called at the common law, and afterwards fees tail in consequence of the statute de donis. 1. A base or qualified fee is such a one as has qualifications subjoined thereto, and which must be determined whenever the qualification annexed to it is at an end. As, in the case of a grant to A and his heirs, tenants of the manor of Dale, in this instance, whenever the heirs of A cease to be tenants of that manor, the grant is entirely defeated. So, when Henry VI granted to John Talbot, lord of the manor of Kingston Lyle in Berks, that he and his heirs, lords of said manor, should be peers of the realm by the title of barons of Lyle. Here John Talbot had a base or qualified fee in that dignity, and the instant he or his heirs quitted the seigneury of this manor, the dignity was at an end. This estate is a fee, because by possibility it may endure forever in a man and his heirs. Yet, as the duration depends upon the concurrence of collateral circumstances, which qualify and debase the purity of the donation, it is therefore a qualified or base fee. 2. A conditional fee at the common law was a fee restrained to some particular heirs, exclusive of others. Donatio stricta et cortata, sicut certes aredibus, quibus darnat a successione exclusis. As, to the heirs of a man's body, by which only his lineal descendants were admitted, in exclusion of collateral heirs, or, to the heirs male of his body, in exclusion both of collaterals and lineal females also. It was called the conditional fee, by reason of the condition expressed or implied in the donation of it, that if the donee died without such particular heirs, the land should revert to the donor. For this was a condition annexed by law to all grants whatsoever, that on failure of the heirs specified in the grant, the grant should be at an end and the land returned to its ancient proprietor. Such conditional fees were strictly agreeable to the nature of feuds when they first ceased to be mere estates for life and were not yet arrived to be absolute estates in fee simple. And we find strong traces of these limited conditional fees which could not be alienated from the lineage of the first purchaser in our earliest Saxon laws. Now, with regard to the condition annexed to these fees by the common law, our ancestors held that such a gift to a man and his heirs of his body was a gift upon condition that it should revert to the donor if the donee had no heirs of his body, but if he had, it should then remain to the donee. They therefore called it a fee simple on condition that he had issue. Now we must observe that when any condition is performed, it is thenceforth entirely gone, and the thing to which it was before annexed becomes absolute and wholly unconditional. So that, 
As soon as the grantee had any issue borne, his estate was supposed to become absolute by the performance of the condition, at least for these three purposes. 1. To enable the tenant to alien the land and thereby to bar not only his own issue, but also the donor of his interest in the reversion. 2. To subject him to forfeit it for treason, which he could not do till issue borne longer than for his life, lest thereby the inheritance of the issue and reversion of the donor might have been defeated. 3. To empower him to charge the land with rents, commons, and certain other encumbrances so as to bind his issue. And this was thought the more reasonable because, by the birth of issue, the possibility of the donor's reversion was rendered more distant and precarious, and his interest seems to have been the only one which the law, as it then stood, was solicitous to protect, without much regard to the right of succession intended to be vested in the issue. However, if the tenant did not in fact alien the land, the course of descent was not altered by this performance of the condition. For if the issue had afterwards died, and then the tenant or original grantee had died without making any alienation, the land, by the terms of the donation, could descend to none but the heirs of his body, and therefore, in default of them, must have reverted to the donor. For which reason, in order to subject the lands to ordinary course of descent, the donees of these conditional fee simples took care to alien as soon as they had performed the condition by having issue, and afterwards repurchased the lands which gave them a fee simple absolute, that would descend to the heirs general according to the course of the common law. And thus stood the old law with regard to conditional fees, which things, says Sir Edward Coke, though they seem ancient, are yet necessary to be known, as well for the declaring how the common law stood in such cases, as for the sake of annuities and such like inheritances are not within the statutes of entail, and therefore remain as at the common law. The inconvenience which attended these limited and fettered inheritances were probably what induced the judges to give way to this subtle finesse, for such it undoubtedly was, in order to shorten the duration of these conditional estates. But on the other hand, the nobility, who were willing to perpetuate their possessions in their own families, to put a stop to this practice, procured the statute of Westminster II, commonly called the statute de donis conditionalibus, to be made, which pays a greater regard to the private will and intentions of the donor than to the propriety of such intentions or any public considerations whatsoever. This statute revives in some sort the ancient feudal restraints which were originally laid on alienations by enacting that from thenceforth the will of the donor be observed, and that the tenements so given to a man and the heirs of his body should at all events go to the issue if there were any, or, if none, should revert to the donor. End of chapter 7, part 1